Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, I'll be joined by Atlanta City Council member Natlin Archibong and then Matt Westmoreland. You know, last night the full council voted to approve leasing forest land for a very controversial plan to build a training center for police and fire departments called a state-of-the-art training facility for police officers and firefighters. It was met with opposition and supporters. But listening to the 17 hours plus of public comment, it was mostly in opposition. And then later in the program, speaking of law enforcement, defund the police. Those are three polarizing words. But depending on whom you ask... The definition, well, it appears to be subjective. So I'll speak with Dr. Amara Inya, Policy and Research Coordinator for Movement for Black Lives. She has some insights on how policy reform advocates should adjust their message as they face opposition and misinformation. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, the former prosecutor charged with misconduct for her handling of the Ahmaud Arbery case has been booked and released from a Georgia jail. Now, former Brunswick District Attorney Jackie Johnson turned herself in yesterday morning at the Glenn County Jail in coastal Brunswick. Now, records reveal she was released without having to pay bond. Johnson is accused of violating her oath of office and obstructing police by trying to shield one of the men charged with Arbery's killing from prosecution. Greg and Travis McMichael, along with William Roddy Bryan, chased Ahmaud Arbery as he was jogging, claiming Arbery was, was suspected of breaking into homes. Now, all three men would be charged months later with Arbery's killing. Greg McMichael was a former investigator who had worked for Johnson. Jury selection is set to begin next month. And if you're going to buck, if you're going to go to Buckhead to Lenox Square, depending on your age, you will need somebody older to take you. Uh, They will soon roll out a new youth supervision policy starting September 21st. All mall visitors under the age of 18 must be accompanied by an adult over the age of 21 after 3 p.m. every day. Simon Property Group, which owns a mall, says employees may ask shoppers for proof of age and will ask them to leave if they don't have identification. In a news release, Simon says the new policy comes from community feedback. It's received about rising crime in the area. Stay tuned. More conversations about that coming up on Closer Look. Coming up next, though, Atlanta City Councilwoman Natalie Archibong, and then followed by Councilmember Matt Westmoreland. This is Closer Look. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, the Atlanta City Council, by a vote of 10 to 4, approved the deal that would lease 85 acres for the building of a new police and fire training facility on property owned by the city, but in unincorporated DeKalb County. The projected $90 million facility, which would be funded by the Atlanta Police Foundation and the Atlanta Fire Rescue Foundation, and possibly some funding from the city of Atlanta, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, earlier today in a press briefing, the CEO of the Atlanta Police Foundation, Dave Wilkinson, said the training facility would be like no other in the country. When we open this training center in just two years, in the fall of 2023, Atlanta will have created something no other city in this country has, and that is a training center that's not only best-in-class, first-rate training, best-in-the-country training for our policemen and our firefighters, but it will be the dedicated to police reform, dedicated to the public, and open to the public. Now, here's a breakdown of that 10-to-4 city council vote. Voting yes, council members Michael Julian Bond, 
Andrea Boone, Andre Dickens, Dustin Hillis, J.P. Mazakite, Marcy Collier-Overstreet, Joyce Shepard, who introduced the measure, Howard Shook, Matt Westmoreland, and Cleta Winslow. Against it, Natalyn Archibong, Antonio Brown, Jennifer Ide, and Carla Smith. Let's bring in longtime Councilmember Natalyn Archibong. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know the last two days you all have been very busy, so we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. My pleasure. Let's begin here, and that's with the obvious. Uh, explain your reason for voting no. Well, I voted no. It was a difficult decision. We definitely need a new uh, firefighter in Atlanta police training facility. The challenge for me was the public engagement process was handled in a way that left many nearby residents uh, questioning and uncertain and really um, confused about what was being proposed and how it would impact their vision for this being a green space worthy of protections and for nearby neighbors concerned about the actual police and fire activities being so near their homes. And so because the public engagement piece was so deeply flawed and because so many constituents expressed concern over having this facility at this particular location, uh, I voted no. So in terms of the process before the actual vote, this was troubling. There were troubling aspects through your lens in terms of the process, in terms of the community input. Now, look, I've covered this for I've covered city council for a long time. I can't recall 17 hours and more than a thousand comments in my time. What does that say to you about the community engagement and the concerns about this measure? Well, when you listen to the uh, comments from the public, they didn't have a full appreciation or understanding of what was being proposed. That in in and of itself was troubling. If the public engagement had been done well, there would be more understanding about the scope and about what act activities would or would not be conducted at the site. And so as you hear the uh, uncertainty, the questions that should have already been uh, addressed by the public engagement that should have been done, this has been under consideration roles for years. For there to be a introduction of this legislation and then, oh, now we need to engage the public, that's very troubling. As I said to Dave Wilkinson almost four years ago, Neighbors near this property have been looking at this, have been concerned about protecting the environment, the trees, the wildlife, nature for many, many years, at least two decades. For them to be ignored in this process is going to be problematic. That uh, advice around engaging the neighbors was not heeded, and thus we've had 17 plus hours. This is not the minimum number of hours. We've had several uh, meetings where the public has called in about this. The public just was a forgotten component of moving forward with this initiative. Then you've been on council for a number of years. How would you have liked to have seen then the community involved in the process? You mentioned there's been talks about what to do with this for years and years. So you're saying this process should have started then years ago. How would you have handled it? Well, I believe that as soon as the uh, decision was made, because Frankly, 30 years ago, the conversation around where to locate our police and fire training facilities, we, the city should have really taken that on instead of leasing space and having temporary locations. So 20 year, 30 years later, the can's been kicked to the finish line. So when the police foundation was committed to a course of helping our city with these services, day one, they should have had Uh, charrettes and uh, opportunities for the public to be a part of how this will be laid out and a part of deciding and understanding why other potential locations were not appropriate. That phase of explaining and sharing with the community, this is how we review other potential sites, this is how those other sites were eliminated, and here's how we selected the present site. That part was not done at all. And over the years, there should have been full understanding about the path forward. Having a marathon from May, June till now just really was not the way to really engage the public in a meaningful uh, way. Joyce Shepard brought this. Did you have conversations with her? Did you ask her why all of a sudden now the urge? And if so, what was that conversation? I did not talk to her, but I knew that Ms. Shepard Uh, She is currently the chair of public safety legal administration, and I know that she is 
aware of the need for this facility. Uh, she has, I believe, the police and fire training facility uh, and the uh, police facilities were located in her district. So she was aware of the conditions. And so I frankly just understood that she was supportive of having a new facility. Uh, the questions that I had, I directed to the administration and to the police foundation around the public engagement piece and the process that they used to eliminate other potential sites. What did you hear then from the police foundation? Uh, that they had reviewed other sites and then that they had been disqualified. And it was more of a conclusion than more of a real thorough analysis of why not one site or another. And that is the same way they rolled out the community engagement. Uh, they told you what the conclusion was as opposed to showing you the steps and the ways in which they were able to weigh and evaluate uh, what was in the public's best interest and in the best interest of the men and women who serve us. It just wasn't a comprehensive enough answer for me to feel comfortable with that process. Councilmember Archibong, did you receive any potential influence or people trying to get you to vote yes to approve this? You know, we had a lot of uh, comments from the public. I'm talking about uh, other folks. I'm, I'm talking like about mayoral, mayoral candidates. Oh, Any no. other entities? Did anyone approach you to try to get you to either vote yes or no? I didn't hear from anyone uh, except for talking with uh, colleagues about um, amendments and, and my uh, unreadiness. Also, um, talking with the Police Foundation again in the administration, uh, the advocates for, um, but not a candidate for any political office. No, ma'am. No one. Should this vote have been taken up in the next administration, you think? I absolutely do. There was an amendment proposed that I supported that would have allowed for the actual effective date for the mayor to enter into this 50-year lease to begin on January 4th, 2022. What that would allow would be for the new mayor to come into office and to affirm that this is the path forward. That is an important point to emphasize because the existing 50-year agreement, mm -hmm. if signed today by the mayor, has a clause in it that will allow for on 180 days notice for this 50-year lease to be canceled. Why not wait until a new administration is in office, affirms that this is the path forward so that our men and women who protect and serve us every day will not continue to have uncertainty around, are we really going to have a training facility at this particular location? We've heard from so many people about this, and, and on, on both sides, obviously. You know you've been on council for a number of years. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, <laughs> you, I don't need to tell you uh, in terms of the, the tension with this, but Councilmember Archibald, what do you think this says, though, to the community, to residents, particularly at, with this type of measure, given one, how close we are to a, a next election cycle here for the city of Atlanta. And then, as you just put it, so many optics around this that you just weren't comfortable with. Obviously, some of your other fellow council members weren't were a, as well. So what do you think this message sends to, how do you think this looks to the community? Well, I think for uh, the community who heard from the police foundation that building this facility will reduce crime, say in Buckhead, that was a false narrative. And so that was unfortunate. It was fundamentally inaccurate. And for there to be the narrative that if we don't support this facility being built here at this location, we don't support our police and firefighters, that was equally untrue. I think what the public sees is uh, rhetoric that is manipulative mm -hmm. and that the government may be rushing to a posture to address a crime situation uh, when there's really unreadiness and uncertainty and that the community should never be left behind when a big decision, a 50-year lease commitment, there needs to be real robust engagement and thoughtful appreciation for the fact that the community at large needs to be a partner in keeping our community safe. And that includes allowing them to understand fully the selection process and the identification of how we're going to move forward as a effort that is transparent and that allows for public input. And to be clear, you are not opposed to a new facility. You're opposed to this facility in this community, or you think there is another viable option here? I think that 
we definitely need new public uh, safety training facilities for our police and fire. I think that the identification of the proper location needs to be um, a transparent process that includes everyone. This location may in fact be appropriate, but because there are so many questions, we haven't gotten the environmental study report. We are not clear on why this location versus another. They're just questions that are up in the air. And I am just interested in us making a decision that is in the best interest of all of the public by being transparent as possible in that decision-making process. How would you, before I let you go and then take a break and bring in council member Matt to Westmoreland, how would you assess the health, the, how would you assess how you all are getting along on city council right now? Is it healthy? Well, you know, I think so. I think a difference of opinion is part of a democracy. I don't think we want groupthink all the time. I do think that the fact that those council members that are further away from this property who have not had council uh, constituents who have been as invested as mine have been and as council member Smith's have been and anyone in DeKalb County who's concerned about the fact that Commissioner Larry Johnson wasn't included mm -hmm. in the overview of this project when this property is in his council district. I think that the fact that we all had our own sense of what was the right direction to move into is just part of a healthy uh, legislative body. And so I don't see this as a litmus test for us getting along or not getting along. A decision has been made and the uh, questions that have been raised remain and we'll just figure out how to move forward. But this is not any indication that we do not uh, get along as a legislative body. Well, based on what you just said, council member, then that being the case, are you saying then they didn't listen to then those council members who this is in the heart or near their districts? If they are so far removed from this area and maybe not totally understanding all the optics around it, could you have done a better job of trying to convince them? Well, I will say that there is some credibility, or some recognition on, the ha on behalf of my colleagues in the sense of uh, there is legislation that was introduced yesterday and there is something, uh, there's a provision in the lease that says that there will be a community engagement, uh, sort of an oversight committee that will be populated. But in my mind, that is a uh, body that is saying, this is where we are and this is what we're going to do. And we're going to let you watch us do it as opposed to having a opportunity to have the community weigh in on decision making. So my colleagues did listen to that extent and that they are going to have a a body that will be working with the police foundation from both unincorporated DeKalb and Atlanta. But again, that is after the conclusion has been reached or the decision has been made. I would have liked for that to have been done in, a, in advance of this. So the fact that we even have anything now is an indication that there was some degree of acceptance of DeKalb County and the citizens nearby need to be engaged now. Atlanta City Councilwoman Natalyn Archibald, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. In just a moment, City Councilman Matt Westmoreland joins me. He voted to approve the deal for the training facility. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. I'm Rose Scott. Uh, just moments ago, I spoke with Atlanta City Councilwoman Natalyn Archibald, who voted against the leasing of the land for the police and fire training facility. Let's welcome in Councilmember Matt to Westmoreland, who voted yes. Councilman, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's good to be here, Rose. Thank you for the invitation. Let's begin here with obviously what the community wants to know, um, and that is explain your reason for voting yes. Sure. Um, I'll say at the outset, and I appreciated the the comments that that 
Councilmember Archibald made earlier, um, this has been a very tough conversation. Um, I think that there are a number of different groups who have been a part of the conversation, whether it's our men and women in uniform, um, whether it's members of the criminal justice um, reform community who want to make sure that that police reform looks different moving forward, um, members of the philanthropic community who have stepped up um, in this instance as they have in the past to help fund a project of this magnitude, um, residents both in Southeast Atlanta and across the city, um, and then finally tree and canopy preservationists. Um, and through hundreds of conversations over the last several months, um, I had the opportunity to offer a series of amendments um, on three separate occasions that were specifically um, provided by, whether it was the Nature Conservancy or folks from the South River Forest Coalition, um, Atlanta residents, um, and we can go kind of into the details of that a little bit later. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the high level framing of this is that we need new public safety training facilities for our men and women in uniform. The facilities that we have right now are atrocious. Um, and I think we have an opportunity that we started now that will continue for months ahead um, to use a portion of this site um, land that we've the city's owned for over 100 years um, that's been closed to the public for 100 years different mm -hmm. pieces of which have been used related to public safety um, we have an opportunity to use a piece of that land to build the facilities we need and then to preserve 75 percent of that site 275 acres um, to restore it and to open it back up to the public um, and to use really significant philanthropic dollars to help move both of those initiatives forward um, i think will be powerful for the city at the end of the day you heard a fellow council member, Nathan Archibald, talk about the process leading up to this. What was troubling mm -hmm. for her were the, all the optics around community engagement. What's your response to that? That I perhaps think, the community was not involved from the beginning enough. Sure. Think, yeah, no, I think Natalie made several good points on that front. And frankly, I'm not going to um, disagree with them. Um, as I, in conversations um, that continued right up until yesterday's vote, you know, there are there were a number of residents, Councilmember Archibong mentioned, we received a lot of feedback, folks who thought we were about to bulldoze 400 acres of a full growth forest, um, or um, just a number of different pieces of the conversation that showed that the city did not do as good a job as it needed to have done around both communicating facts and information um, you know, what the condition of the tree canopy on this site, what it could be in the future if we make investments that will take millions of dollars um, to both restore, remove all the evasive species, restore the quality canopy that does exist there, plant new canopy that will grow over the next 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 years, um, building trails that will connect to Entrenchment Creek on the east side of the property and then to Entrenchment Creek Park and Gresham Park and Constitution Lakes. There's an opportunity to use these 265 acres on our site to connect to 565 other acres. Um, and there are a number of amendments that we added around tightening up the land that could be developed. Um, Natalie spoke about the Community Advisory Committee, mm -hmm. uh, which we said will come will be set up by both the Atlanta City Council and the DeKalb County Commission. Um, and so we will select representatives from each of the adjacent neighborhoods around the property, representatives from the environmental and conservation organizations who have been active in the South River Forest community um, to provide oversight and recommendations on every single piece of this process as it moves forward. Um, and then the other two things that I think are important to mention is that before any work gets done, um, this the site plan Mm -hmm. impacted by the advisory committee will need to come back to the next mayor um, and as Natalie mentioned the current or former mayor has the opportunity um, to disband this lease if at any point that seems to be the appropriate thing to do for the city um, but this was an opportunity for us to get started on what I think is really important work well why not wait for the new administration that way you don't have to go back and make sure this is in this clause is in the contract and all that why not just wait for a new administration and then take the vote up then yeah I Frankly, this we're late doing this. I mean, if you we've we have moved our well, you, I office. mean, but a few more months, you still would have been later. <laughs> Someone listening says, "Well, come on now, y'all been late for Councilmember Archibald says thirty years late." So, can you no, understand someone <laughs> saying, "Well, look, 
Come on. Yeah. What's a few more yeah. months and a new administration? No, I cannot cannot speak to the 30 years um, as I've only been here for three of them. But I think that um, I think it was this is a conversation that, as, as Councilman Archibong mentioned, the topic of doing a public safety training center on this site, I think, has been in discussion for over a decade. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that preserving and expanding green space in the South River Forest area has also been a really important topic mm -hmm. of conversation. It was included in Atlanta City Design back in 2017. All of these pieces, I think, underscore how complicated and complex this issue was. I think it was the hardest topic of the of our four years over the last term um, because of all of these different pieces in play and stakeholders that need to be engaged and should have been engaged better and I believe will be engaged properly um, moving forward. And I, I like I think you, you asked about colleague um, talking well, to hey, each Before other. you get to that, yeah. through your lens, why not wait and take this up in the next administration? That wasn't clearly answered. It, yeah, well, I think it, it's it's a topic that, frankly, will be up in the next administration because what yesterday's vote set up was for us to be able to start site development um, and engineering work to actually build a plan about what is going to happen both on the developed portion of this piece of property and the significantly larger portion that we want to preserve forever, um, like. All of that work is just beginning now and has to be approved by the city, by the mayor, before it can happen. Um, and that is something that will happen under the next mayor. The price tag for this, and let's get some clarity here, uh, Council Member Westmoreland. We keep hearing this $90 million. Initially, we'd heard that the police foundation would kick in some, obviously, mostly most of it. And I think maybe the fire department uh, foundation, but there's... With the city of Atlanta, taxpayers also be kicking in a big chunk of this. Yeah. Now, my two my two thoughts on that are one, um, you are right that the the foundation having conversations with the philanthropic community in Atlanta is offering a pretty substantial investment in this property. Mm -hmm. um, and I I frankly think that I am grateful for that. I appreciate the fact that the the philanthropic and the public sectors can work on projects like this together. Um, the money that the city will be kicking in, frankly, two things. One, it'll be geared towards the second phase of this project, which will be the green space and trails and, and the 275 acres that we'll be preserving um, in the future. And two, um, it will be cheaper on an annual basis than what we are spending right now to lease space for our police officers and firefighter training centers um, currently. And so we'll be able to spend less money um, and thanks to partnerships, we'll be able to have a better facility and for the first time in a century, bring 270 acres back online um, as passive green space for the public, both on the ground and the tree canopy. Through your lens, this is the best option where this property is located in surrounding communities. Yeah. This is no, the best location. And considering the demographics of the communities, considering we are talking, and I'm going to be talking about defund the police in a few mo mo moments here, mm -hmm. all the optics around that. I don't need to explain that to you because you know. That's right. That's what much of the last 15 months has been about um, as we talk about public safety. So I think part of the conversation, and, and your question is spot on, and since we first started talking about this topic four or five months ago, I have spent a great deal of time both myself and in conversation with others looking at thinking about other possible sites, whether it's property that the city owns an hour away in Paulding County um, or different pieces of property that that either are right inside the city or just outside the city limits. Um, and I think if you look at the desire to have our firefighters and our police training together at the same place, right? Which I believe the the there's synergy there that can be really helpful as we think about um, what training in the future looks like. Um, and if you want to provide both a classroom environment as well as the different aspects of a training center that at the moment we have to travel, we have our, our folks have to travel 
over an hour south of Atlanta um, to go to a to a driving course. And because of the distance and the ex, the high level of usage of that facility, don't get it as often as we frankly need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think if you put all that together and you're like, all right, where is there a site that has this many acres um, that is currently owned by the city? And I, I don't want to miss sight of the fact that this also allows us to bring online and to remove evasive species from and to restore the other 275 acres on the site. Um, and I think that is. Well, y'all, let me ask you this. Y'all couldn't have gotten rid of this, these evasive <laughs> plants and whatever is out there before now. Could we have gotten? I mean, there are a lot of things that we. I mean, you didn't need. Could. Did you really? I mean, not trying to be flippant, just being fair. Because yeah. I think what's important, and and this is what I said to to Councilmember Archibald too, because the community, and that's what this program is about. The community sees a lot of issues with this, and then they see a lot of non transparency here. And so when they get answers like, "Well, it, we can now remove these invasive species," did you need a ninety million dollar facility to do that? No, but to properly remove evasive species and provide the restoration and new tree canopy and trails and connectivity to other pieces of green space nearby, that does take resources. Um, and on the community front, mm-hmm. I, I will, um, there has been a whole lot of conversation, especially around, and I think residents in the immediate area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we received a letter on Tuesday, I think, um, from the neighborhood association president from the neighborhood that literally abuts this property. Um, and I'll be happy to send it to you, um, expressing support for it and calling out deficiencies that have existed over the last several months um, and expectations that they have for what this will look like moving forward. Um, and I think whether it's that neighborhood or the others, both in DeKalb County and on the city side that are in close proximity, like those are the people who need to be at this table as we develop a plan for the site and as we actually move toward developing it which is not yet going to happen and won't for several more months they're the people who need to be at the table and we have in this legislation through a series of amendments codified that that's exactly what will happen you and i've had this conversation before um, about the importance of city council members being very active in their communities and even in not their districts they represent you know, you're mm-hmm. at large. And I, to be fair, I've seen you at, because I host a lot of community events and I see you and you come up and you want to give me DAP and all of that. But I'll ask you the same message. I'll ask you the same question. I asked uh, Councilmember Archibong about, can you understand through the lens of the community, their concerns about the transparency of all this? And what do you think their perception is? Can you understand them saying, well, this is just going to be something that we've dealt with before, whether it was with the stadium mm-hmm. being built, Georgia State, Beltline, yeah, we've been down this road before. I'll tell you, I think you and I, I think, I don't remember exactly, I think I may have come on your program after the vote around the Gulch back in 2018. I don't exactly remember when the last time I was on. Um, but when I think about tough topics or close votes or controversial proposals, um, when I think about this one, I think there are incredibly valid points all the way around the table. Um, I think whether it's people, officers who don't feel supported and feel that they need new training facilities, mm-hmm. criminal justice reform advocates who say, all right, some who say we shouldn't have a training center at all. Some who say um, we should, but can you explain to me exactly why it needs to be this size and what kind of training is going to take place there? Um, whether it's residents who say we want a center, we want a safety training center, but not here. Residents who say we want one and we're okay to have it here, but what are you going to do about noise or what are you going to do about tree canopy or how's the community can be engaged? What I appreciated from the conversation over the last several weeks and months, as difficult as it has been, um, is that I think there are an incredible amount of really valid points that have been made all on all sides of the issue. Um, and I'm grateful that people have reached out, whether it's to have hundreds of personal conversations or small group sessions or online conversations. Um, the answer to your question is I completely understand where folks are coming from um, if they have concerns that they have raised. And I think it's, it's, I understand people who are opposed. 
um, and governing is is hard and putting together the best possible um, piece of legislation, however many amendments that takes. And mm -hmm. it took 30 amendments over the last three or four weeks. This was new for you in a sense. What have you learned? Um, this was new for me. Yeah. In terms I of think... this amount of community. Well, yeah. 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 Well, no, you know, last summer too, I think we had 18 or 19 hours of public comment heading into the budget vote um, back in the summer of 2020. Um, we had 17 hours of public comment about a month ago as it relates to the new comprehensive development plan update that the city is working on. I think, I think a lot of things. Um, I think we are receiving that people are very engaged, whether it's on the public safety topic or zoning is another one that's drawing a lot of energy all across the city. Um, I think it's a, it's a reminder that um, being um, proactive in sharing facts and information and making sure that everyone is operating from the same pieces of information and then um, engaging in a really robust conversation where disagreement is frequent. Um, we have it even among each other on council. Sure. Um, whether, whether we're talking about different pieces of this project or something else, um, I think that's healthy and I think it makes policy stronger and it ends up being better um, for the residents of Atlanta. But there are a lot of lessons here around um, improvements that can always be made around process mm -hmm. um, as we get to a good outcome. Atlanta City Councilman Matt Westmoreland, as always, I appreciate you taking the time on such short notice to join the conversation. Our listeners really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Have a good one. You too. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It was back in May of this year, May 7th to be exact, in an outdoor ceremony, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed HB 286 into law. Called a police protections measure, Kemp cited the new law was to prevent local governments from any type of, quote, defunding of the police policies. And it limits police funding cuts by local governments to no more than 5% a year. And it doesn't allow for any cumulative cuts over a five-year period. Here's what Kemp said. And as we all know, radical movements like the defund the police movement seek to vilify the men and women who leave their families every day and put their lives on the line to protect all Georgians. This far-left movement will endanger our communities and our law enforcement officers and leave our most vulnerable at risk. Now, the law is also very vague in terms of any legal consequences. And when it comes to actually defining what defund the police means, well, that depends on whom you ask. Nevertheless, my next guest, Dr. Amara Inya, is the policy and research coordinator for the Movement for Black Lives. And she has some insight into all of this. Dr. Inya, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you came on a day where we were <laughs> you came on a good day to talk about this. Um, let's begin, though, a little bit with learning more about you and your role with Movement for Black Lives. What's about? Tell us about this organization. Sure. So the Movement for Black Lives is actually an ecosystem of uh, a few uh, hundreds of organizations across the country, mainly grassroots, uh, base building, community-based organizations that are really at the front lines of many of the issues that we talk about uh, when it comes to Black people. And so we work to win the rights, recognition, and resources for Black people on a number of uh, of issues that you can think of. Um, and so we were especially involved uh, in the uprisings last year, but have been advancing agendas at the federal level, as well as at the state level, as well as uh, finding ways to support many of the organizations uh, that comprise the ecosystem. So those three words, defund the police, very polarizing to begin with. When folks ask you, Dr. Daniel, how do you define defund the police? Through your lens, what you think it should mean or maybe you want to say what you think most people think it means. Yeah, so we know that there's, you know, there's there is some onboarding that has to take place for people to really understand what 
defunding the police means. And, and quite honestly, we just can use a clear example. So the movement for Black Lives, we use an invest divest frame for much of our policy work. And that means that we talk about the investments that need to be made that have not been made in our communities, in our people, uh, in, in Black people generally. But we also have to divest from the things that we know have been harmful and where the majority of resources and funding is going to, which is the carceral state, prisons, and policing uh, mainly. And if you scale that up uh, at a larger level, the military industrial complex, for example. So all one has to do is look at the, comp comparatively look at the budget, for example, I'm in Chicago, mm -hmm. we spend about $1.8 billion on policing. And at the same time, uh, we have seen cuts in our Department of Environment, cuts in public health, cuts in education. So people know what defunding means, what it looks like, because we've seen uh, defunding occurring. It's just happening in the most vital things that we actually should be investing uh, in our in our communities. And so it's about putting, making sure that the things that actually strengthen individuals, families, communities, that's where we put our resources and we defund and divest from the things that have been harmful. So, if, for example, if a police department wants a, a tank, and, I'm, and I know that's an extreme, but I'm just trying to give an example here. You're talking about investing in wraparounds, wrap, what we call wraparound services for communities that might be in complement to policing or effective community policing. For example, here in the Atlanta area, we have a lot of programs uh, where instead of calling the police, they want folks to call a different number, particularly if it, it deals with someone experiencing homelessness or having a, a mental a health mental crisis. Things of that nature you think are important when you talk about defunding the police as opposed to just taking money from law enforcement agencies. I just want to be clear. Yes, yes. So at the heart of the matter is the fact that police are now expected or saddled with the responsibilities of the public policy failings across the board of, of leadership. Uh, in our cities. And so when we have divested from education, from housing, from uh, economic investment, and then we're expecting police to somehow address all of these ills that we're seeing in their jobs, that's not what they're supposed to do. So defunding, when we talk about investing, for example, in mental health services or investing in services that expand housing, those are the things that we have to put resources to, not expecting police, which is largely reactionary, to come in at the back end and do what they're trained to do, which is not address issues of uh, in a mental health crisis or deal with homeless people beyond arresting and those other sort of mechanisms that they use. So when we talk about those groups or those analysts or experts who are uh, proponents of what we may call police reform or however you want to phrase that, you actually have some insight into how they need to message if they're going to use any of the narrative around defund the police. My first question is, should they even use those three words? Here's our policy on defunding the police or whatever. <laughs> Let's start with that. Well, I mean, I will say that the fact that we're even talking about defunding the police shows how much uh, has happened in society and the work of folks who've been pushing to call attention to the lack of investment in our communities for such a long time. And so it really is critical that we're even having conversations around defund. We know that the phrase has been used to scare people or to ask, oh, well, what happens with no police? But in reality, we do have to have a very frank discussion about where our money is going. And the fact that in one city, in Chicago, for example, not only are we paying $1.8 billion in police and police infrastructure, we're also paying, we paid half a billion dollars in a 10-year span just on lawsuits because of police misconduct. So when you start to have those frank conversations, it lays the groundwork for honest, good faith dialogue about what defund actually means and so, why it's important. And so if you're talking about then let's invest, let's talk about how then we invest, should that, shouldn't that also include, for example, we're talking here about a new training facility for first responders, for police and, and, and our firefighters, that could also hopefully through the lens of a lot of community folks include racial bias training or any other type of training that officers need that will be helpful to help them when they are out in the community. Can those two work together? Well, the, the current discussion, even around training, I mean, that that is actually part of the status quo. So we've talked about training and the lack thereof or the kinds of training that are necessary, but it didn't prevent Chicago police from murdering a, uh, Laquan McDonald, a teenager, a few years ago. It didn't stop 
uh, Chicago police from, from killing a 13-year-old earlier this year. Uh, we've seen similar examples happening in Ohio earlier this year and elsewhere. And so the, the, the training question, I think, has always been part of reform discussions. But what we are saying is that it's not enough to simply talk about training and what police need, because whenever we frame the conversation in that way, it results in more resources and more money going to police while our communities are continuously disinvested. So then what is the solution then? Because someone listening says, well, okay, but we hear you when you say, well, perhaps training didn't help and it's been tragic. And we we, we spent all afternoon listing all the individuals who've lost their lives through police-involved killings that many feel could have been avoided. But one listening may say, but there has to be some type of measures or new implementation measures implemented to to possibly change that. Are you in favor of that? I mean, we know we have President Obama's 21st century policing, uh, which, you know, pretty much went away under the Trump administration. But isn't there something there on that end for, for law enforcement that needs to be improved or enhanced? Well, and that's the, the, the idea is that their focus is always on law enforcement instead of focus. So when we look at the root causes of violence and we look at the root causes of even criminal activity in our communities, it's so far beyond law enforcement. It actually, it's the issues of housing, it's the issues of mental health resources, it's the issues of economic disinvestment. And so that's actually where our attention should go. And until we shift the lens from focusing on police to focusing on those other areas, we're going to continue to see the same outcomes. Let me ask you this. When you talk about then messaging and what the police reform advocates and organizations can do as it relates to all this around defund the police, what do you tell them? If they come to you for consulting, what do you tell them? How do you relay that message then? Just by having frank conversations. So we actually talk about the issues that exist. So uh, when we have situations that are involved, we had a situation where an individual, a young man was killed because he was having a mental health breakdown in his home and police arrived on the scene, killed him and his downstairs neighbor. Well, that's a situation we also in the same city that closed six of its mental health clinics to save a couple million dollars in a multi-billion dollar budget. So we have to really be honest about the areas that we have disinvested and where we have not done a good job of creating infrastructure that actually supports people so that they can have their basic needs taken care of. And we can't talk about violence without talking about how the city does not address exposure to lead in homes and in schools. That results in violent, it can result in violent behavior for children who are exposed. And so, yeah, we can talk about police at the back end who might be harmful when an incident occurs, or we can talk about how we make investments in our Department of Environment to actually mitigate exposure to neurotoxins. So it's the difference between root causes or reactionary measures. And you mentioned infrastructure. I want to go back because, as you know, you were listening to the conversation earlier. So here's what Mayor Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom said in response to those who were against this proposed uh, firefighter and, and police officer training facility. Take a listen. And people have said we need to abolish the police and defund the police. Well, I, I don't know how you do that unless somebody is going to abolish crime. I know that when my house has been broken into, not once but twice, it's the police I call. Uh, when our family experienced the tragedy, these men and women who solved the case. When my son had a seizure, it was, it was Atlanta Fire Rescue that showed up. When my son had an asthma attack, the paramedics, Atlanta Fire Rescue, that showed up. So this notion that we somehow cannot, or that we somehow can exist in society um, without public safety, is simply ludicrous. And do you think it's that type of messaging that comes across the loudest and clearest when you hear defund the police? That messaging has certainly come across, although I do think that it's a little bit misleading to conflate or to collapse police and fire and paramedics into one. And so I think that's a, that's misleading as conversations have never been about eliminating emergency services or fire uh, firefighters and, and the like. Uh, it's really been focused on the role of police and policing, which has historically been harmful, especially for black people. And so I think when, I always emphasize honest, good faith conversations because when the messaging is is com is conveyed in that way, 
it deliberately obscures what we're really talking about here, which is how have police played a role in creating safety when communities in the hundreds of organizations in the movement for black lives have articulated what creates safety and they're not saying that it's police they are saying that it is communities ability to have the resources that we need to create systems of care internally in our own communities that create safety policing has not and has never created safety especially for black people and we have to be very clear about that so that when we're talking about how budgets are allocated and how resources resources are allocated they're going to the things that actually create stronger resilient safe communities not to policing improving the communities to to have better outcomes and then you may not need as much heavy police force is what you're saying precisely precisely i'm gonna have to bring you back um had a busy day on this show, but we're definitely going to bring you back. Dr. Amara Enya is the policy and research coordinator for the Movement for Black Lives, and she talked about understanding what defund the police is and is not about. Come on back. Good conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Enya. Thank you so much. Looking forward. Y'all wore me out today. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. No, y'all didn't wear me out. These are conversations that are very important. So make sure you keep keep us on our toes as well. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can always listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like or any of our our other podcasts. Did You Wash Your Hands, Political Breakfast, and also our news brief. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.